WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. A major wrinkle in the race for attorney general. The Supreme Court and Governor Holcomb dodging questions, plus Indiana moves to stage three early and more on Indiana Week in Review, the week ending May 22nd, 2020. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, former Congressman Todd Rakita called incumbent Attorney General Curtis Hill, quote, seriously, politically, fatally wounded. The Indiana Supreme Court recently suspended Hill's law license for 30 days after it determined he criminally battered four women. And that's why Rokita says he's seeking to unseat Hill for the Republican nomination for AG. Rokita says he wanted to wait until the Supreme Court disciplinary process played out before jumping into the race against Curtis Hill. There is no way that he can survive this moment, nor really should he. And that's the problem here. We can do better as a party. We can do better as a state. Rokita joins Decatur County Prosecutor Nate Harder and Indianapolis Attorney John Westerkamp in challenging Hill for the nomination. And the two-term Secretary of State and four-term Congressman says he thinks he has an advantage with convention delegates. They know me. They know the, my record. I'm the only one with a proven record over multiple offices that so people don't have to guess where I would be. They don't have to rely on promises. Republican delegates will begin voting for the nomination next month. Will Todd Rokita win the GOP nomination for Attorney General? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, State House reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Andalini, Andalini, what impact does Rokita's entrance into the race have? Well, I actually think with four white guys running, it, it probably means, with three white guys in Curtis Hill, I think it probably means Curtis Hill is the nominee. Um, people, they know Rokita. Uh, he came in third when he ran for Senate. They know him, and that's not necessarily an advantage for them. So, uh, I really think it'll help cement because the governor is not willing to act to replace Curtis Hill, which he should have done as soon as the Supreme Court suspended him. So, and he's not even willing to endorse anybody in this case. So, I, I really think that Curtis Hill will be the Republican nominee, and it's 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 absolutely shameful that you would have as the leading uh, law enforcement officer of the state of Indiana somebody who criminally groped four women. Mike O'Brien, it would. Logic would seem to dictate that any further candidates into the race would help the incumbent, in this case, obviously, Curtis Hill. But Todd Rokita is not just another candidate. He has a long history in the party and at the convention among delegates in particular. So is, does Todd Rokita become the front runner, or is that still Curtis Hill? I'm not sure Curtis Hill's the front runner. I think um, what Rokita coming into the race does, um, being a very conservative uh, Republican himself and having run through this convention, uh, the convention process, of which the delegates don't tend to turn over in a major way every, uh, you know, every two or four years. Um, you get some newcomers, but it's a lot of people who've been doing this their whole lives or for a very long time, and and, and know Todd Rakita and remember him and like them and supported him. 
uh, from all over the state. And so I think what it might do, which is which may be unique in the candidates that have come in so far, it may speak to the base that still doesn't believe that either what Curtis Hill did was that wrong, that maybe he got raked over the coals here by the establishment, whatever, like, that kind of part of the, that segment of the de- of delegation of the convention, this may send a message to them that, hey, this wasn't okay. This guy does need to be replaced. He does put at serious risk um, retention of that of that attorney general's office uh, in the fall. Uh, and Rakita could be the one to bring bring that message. Yeah, John Schwann is talking to Todd Rakita, and as we heard him in the piece there, it struck me that there have been, besides Rakita, there were three other people who who sought this this nomination at some point. One of them, Adam Krupp, dropped out. And at no point did any of them state it so clearly that they thought Curtis Hill needed to go because what he did was wrong. And Todd Rakita pretty much said that. So is that going to help him in this case? Uh it may help him. It certainly hurts Curtis Hill, I think, for the very reason that Mike articulated. I do think that they play to the same portion of the Republican Party, that a lot of the people who are feel good about Curtis Hill and like him, uh, what he's done in office, would be the same constituency that likes uh, Todd Rokita. So he is, the, he, I think his, his, his condemnation of the uh, conduct of the current attorney general does resonate with uh, a good number of constituents, certainly those from that wing of, of the party. Uh, but still, when you have this kind of um, four-way race, it, it's it's hard for an incumbent to be unseated in that atmosphere, especially when the governor is not at least explicitly uh, taking sides. Now, I will uh, presume that he is taking sides behind the scenes and is working his uh, proverbial magic behind the scenes. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But Nikki Kelly, I wanted to ask you, obviously, Todd Rakita referenced this, um, and, and certainly beyond uh, knowing these delegates, he has high name recognition, you would think, certainly among Republican convention delegates. But this is a vote-by-mail convention, which we've never seen in Indiana before, where you can take all the time you want to sit down, look at your ballot, and research and look up and, 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 and uh, find information about any of these candidates. So will name recognition have the same kind of advantage that we normally see? I think it'll have some. I think Todd Rakita knew that he was interested in the race. So he was actually working the Lincoln Day circuit early before the pandemic hit. Yeah. He was already talking to delegates. So I think he's probably still doing that very one-on-one with them. And, and that'll matter. Uh, we'll see, I guess, how the, I mean, it does take away sort of the, the intrigue of the day where you can, you know, drop out and then throw your support to someone else and try to get different votes on the convention floor because people will have voted in advance. So I, I personally can't wait to see how it turns out. Yeah, I think that's the same for a lot of us. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, will former Congressman Todd Rakita win the Republican nomination for Attorney General? A yes or B no? Last week's question on a very similar topic, will Attorney General Curtis Hill win re-election in 2020? Just 14% of you say yes, 52% say another Republican will win the race, and 34% say a Democrat will win. Now, I want to know, we asked that very same question that exact same way a few months ago, and at that time, 
the majority of people said Curtis Hill would be re-elected, so it's interesting to see how those numbers have changed. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, this has been alluded to a couple times by our panelists, but Governor Eric Holcomb won't say which Republican candidate for Attorney General he's backing, while the Indiana Supreme Court this week refused to tell Holcomb whether he could appoint a replacement for Curtis Hill. The field is largely settled after former Congressman Todd Rokita joined the race. Rokita, Decatur County Prosecutor Nate Harder, and Indianapolis Attorney John Westerkamp are challenging incumbent Curtis Hill. Holcomb was asked directly which candidate he'll back. In terms of uh, who I'm going to back in another race, I'm going to back the delegates because they will decide. Meanwhile, Curtis Hill began a 30-day suspension of his law license after the Supreme Court ruled he criminally battered four women. State law isn't clear on whether that suspension meant Hill vacates the office, because if he did, the governor has the right to name a replacement. So Holcomb asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. But the court said the disciplinary case against Hill is finished, and Holcomb has no right to intervene. The justices did not answer the question of whether a 30-day license suspension means Hill can't return to his office in a month. Mike O'Brien, I want to start with Governor Holcomb's answer, if we're going to call it that. He's been clear that he does not want Curtis Hill to win renomination. So why not choose a candidate and say, that's my guy? Because you can be Eric Holcomb with a approval rating in the high 60s, or you can be Mitch Daniels or the most popular politician in town. And a lot of times when you get up in front of a room full of delegates or precinct, I was county chairman for a long, for eight years in Hendricks County, and I never got in front of a room of precinct committeemen and said, this is the candidate I want, because it doesn't work. Um, and I was well-liked in that room, I think. Um, you, <laughs> maybe not. We'll see. But, um, but no, the reason is the delegates have one substantive job. Precinct committeemen have very few substantive engagements in the party where they get to go and vote and decide what candidate they want to, that they want uh, to represent the party in the, uh, in the general election. And if you have a heavy hand on the front end, if you say, this is my candidate, this is who I want, a lot of times people feel like you're taking the one job they had away from them, um, and they don't like that. And so there's, there, are, there are other ways to get what you want if you're, a, if you're an effective leader than saying, this is exactly what I want, and being heavy-handed about it, and work behind the scenes, and, and, and hope that you, uh, you get the person you do want, but you don't have to get out in front, and get out in front of them. And Delaney, is Mike Wright, would Eric Holcomb saying, this is the candidate I want, actually end up working against him? What Eric Holcomb should have done, if he had any leadership potential at all, is to replace Curtis Hill. That puts the that puts the onus on Curtis Hill to go to the Supreme Court and ask whether or not he can be replaced on the 30-day suspension. But the governor didn't do that. The governor didn't weigh in when the legislature was dealing with the fact that uh, what the criteria would be for removing an attorney general, removing an attorney general during the session either. It isn't that he isn't uh, that this is effective leadership. It's no leadership. Okay, he is going to sit back and let a broker of women who obviously disrespects women be the highest elected legal official in the state of Indiana, or at least hopefully only the nominee of his party for that office. And it, it, it doesn't show good leadership. It shows no leadership. Nikki Kelly, I want to talk now a little bit about what the Supreme Court did or did not do this week in, in refusing to answer the governor's question about replacing or appointing a replacement for Curtis Hill. We got a little bit of an update on that yesterday when uh, some folks in Indianapolis took another route to try and get that question answered. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, the court basically said, look, you don't have standing to intervene in a disciplinary case. So what's now happened is we've got actually two lawsuits, one in Marion County and one in Elkhart County filed by citizens who are saying, you know, in a separate case, look, this is a case of first impression. We need to know if he can still be attorney general without a license or with it, without an active license. Now, I don't know if they can get all that sorted out in the next 20-some days, but uh, it at least is, a you know, an avenue to maybe have this clarified for the future. John Schwanis, is because of that very tight timeline that Nikki just alluded to, in terms of Curtis Hill being able to come back and serve out the rest of his term in office at the very least, is the smart money on Curtis Hill being able to do just that? I would guess so. Again, the, the unanswerable question, or the question, I guess it's answerable, we just don't know the answer, is how much arm-twisting the governor is doing. Uh, you know, Mike alluded to the fact that uh, there are other types of persuasion than going public, having a news conference, or answering the question, at least, in a news conference about your preference in the race. Uh, I still am convinced that, as the, the leader of the party, uh, he could, if he's willing to play hardball behind the scenes, uh, make things come out the way he, he wants. Uh, again, I, it's it's totally understandable why he wouldn't go public at this point, because I, I don't think it's a matter of whether he could influence it or not. I think it's a matter of the risk is too great. Uh, what if he, he says, this is what I want publicly, and then it doesn't happen? And I think then that's, a, that's an embarrassment. It's a political wound. And it's harder than the next time when you're dealing with the legislature or any other entity, any other political battle, and you say, I'm the governor, I'm the boss, I'm the CEO, I want this. People kind of snicker and say, well, you wanted something else before and you didn't get it. Uh, so I, I understand why he wouldn't uh, go public with it at this point. That, but yeah. that's the essence of leadership. You, you, when, when, uh, when you have a moral dilemma like this, you step forward. You don't just husband that political capital out there, you know? And that, but, that's why he's not a leader. But he's done that. He's called repeatedly for Curtis Hill to resign. He's, he's, he could have he's replaced not, Curtis Hill, and he didn't do it. Attorney General. He has said he not, does not want to be Attorney General. This is about tactics at this point. This is about working convention. No, it, he, he could have replaced him and made Curtis go to the Supreme Court and ask whether he's still he in. Do he it. didn't do it. What was he going to do? Walk some candidate down to the attorney general's office and seat him and put him in the Absolutely. Seat? He's the governor of the state of Indiana. At, a ve- at, the, at the very least, at the very least, that would have been incredibly entertaining. I don't, know if, it would have been, I don't know if it would have been legal, but it would have been entertaining. All right. Well, Indiana moved forward early to the next stage of its plan to relax COVID-19 restrictions. Stage three of the governor's back on track timeline began Today, Friday, for all but three counties statewide. That next stage, originally set to begin May 24th, allows gyms, fitness centers, community pools, campgrounds, playgrounds, and tennis and basketball courts to open within social distancing restrictions and sanitation guidelines. Governor Eric Holcomb says the early transition is possible because he says most Hoosiers have continued to follow mask wearing, social distancing, and hand washing recommendations. So if you are 65 and older or if you have underlying health conditions, we're still telling you to be uber cautious. Stage three also allows gatherings of up to 100 people, which State Health Commissioner Dr. Chris Box acknowledges she's concerned about. However, I do think that there is a way that we can do this safely, and that involves all of the same things that we've already been doing. 
Box encourages groups of that size to gather outdoors. Nikki Kelly, I think a lot of people are looking at the metrics we, we see uh, on, the, on the state's website in terms of cases and the number of deaths continuing to go up and wonder, what are we doing? So what sort of metrics did the governor and Dr. Box point to as evidence for why they decided to move forward a little early? Yeah, I mean, they've said for a while now, just looking at cases isn't a good metric because if we're testing a bunch more people, there are obviously going to be new cases. So what they prefer to be looking at is hospitalization numbers, seeing how many people are hospitalized with COVID-19, looking at whether we have enough ICU beds, enough ventilators, whether we have people to do the testing and then trace individual breakouts to see if we can stop them before they spread. So that's the numbers they are looking for, not just cases and deaths. John Schwanis, obviously they talk about the numbers guiding the decisions, but the original opening date was technically Sunday, and now the entire weekend will be uh, stage three for most of the state. I should note that Lake, Marion, and Cass counties have to wait until at least June 1st to move on to that next phase of the governor's plan. But do you think that the holiday weekend played into the, the thinking here a little bit? You stole my thunder. I was going to say, in <laughs> fact, that uh, uh, that numbers did play a very important, critical uh, role here, I'm convinced. And the numbers were the numbers on the calendar showing that with a holiday weekend, uh, two extra days of uh, merriment and mirth um, and the enjoyment of community pools and playgrounds uh, would be important to Hoosiers. So I think, uh, it's, I mean, it's a bit of a surprise given the numbers, the, the other numbers, you might say, the medical numbers. Uh, to which you alluded, and, and this decision coming in the same week, for instance, that uh, our neighbors to the north, uh, actually the governor there extending the shelter in place, the more formal lockdown, if you will, for two weeks, uh, going in a different direction from, from Eric Holcomb. So I think numbers did matter, but again, they're the numbers on the calendar, not necessarily the numbers of uh, dealing with this illness. Michael Bryan, we've talked all along throughout the COVID-19 pandemic about the risk of opening too soon or, or going a little uh, further than maybe... Um, the numbers dictate, but is, this was only a couple of days here. Um, is there really much risk in doing this now for Eric Holcomb and the state? No, I, I don't think there is, as long as people are acting responsibly. The governor, again, on Friday, it has, uh, along with Dr. Bach, emphasized the need to take those uh, safety measures. You're going to a beach, you're going to uh, you know, an outdoor uh, patio to, to have, a, have a drink this weekend. Are you still, this, is, this is going to continue to be for a very long time about uh, personal responsibility and, and taking um, ownership. It was never. It was, it was early. It was not about, and it continues to not be about how many new cases we have because testing, as Nikki said, is always is going to increase. Um, this is about managing hospital capacity for the for the sickest of the sick, um, and that's what they continue to focus on. And we need to, and they're going to continue to as we continue to open. I should correct one thing. My piece mentioned that playgrounds were allowed to open. That was originally the case under the, the, the broad reopening guidelines or the, the timeline that the governor put out. When he signed his executive order on Thursday, playgrounds were removed from that list. So playgrounds across the state must remain closed for the foreseeable future because they didn't give an, ad- an exact date on when they would be allowed to reopen. Uh, but Andelaney, sort of a similar question to what I just asked, Mike. This was a couple days. They're looking at the numbers on a day-to-day basis, and they show them holding steady, at least the metrics that they are caring about here. Is there much risk to moving forward a couple of days early? Well, it's not just a couple of days. I mean, 
the the reopen date was an arbitrary date to begin with. So the question is whether Michigan's approach or our approach is the correct one. I hope we don't see a resurgence of this, but I think Dr. Dr. Bach's interest is very concerned about the groups of a hundred that are going to be in churches and the use of gyms and things like that. So there seems to be some split between the governor and the medical people advising him. And I think that's worrisome because then, then you wonder whether it's political pressure as opposed to the, the real safety issue at hand. I just hope we don't see a resurgence, but we have seen it in other places, particularly in the South, where they opened before they should have. So let's hope that's not the case here. Well, I think that's something we all hope, certainly. A Northwest Indiana Building and Construction Workers Union group has endorsed incumbent Governor Eric Holcomb, the first time that organization has backed a Republican in an Indiana gubernatorial race. The Northwestern Indiana Building and Construction Trades Council says it endorsed Holcomb because of his, quote, firm support for union labor and working families. Holcomb said he was honored by the endorsement. The council is comprised of 31 unions and more than 35,000 workers in the construction trades. John Schwannis, does an endorsement like this, where it's the first time they've endorsed a Republican, make waves? Uh, well, generally, I, I don't think endorsements mean a whole lot, with two exceptions. One, if an organization has a lot of uh, organizational heft, a lot of grassroots uh, infrastructure that it can apply to a given race if a candidate needs anything from of course, this is the Internet era. Nobody needs to stuff mailboxes or envelopes anymore, I guess. But to, to the extent that there is some still actual uh, feet on the ground kind of work that needs to be done, an organization, if it's willing to do that, as well as offer an endorsement, can make a difference. The other uh, time that they make a difference, it seems to me, is, is what's applicable here. And that is when you have something that is unexpected or out of the ordinary, where you have, say, a, you know, if you had a long, a former Republican governor, uh, you know, who was popular endorsing a Democrat or something like that that's out of character. And for that reason, yes, I, I don't know if it makes waves, but it is more significant perhaps than would have been a, quote-unquote, more traditional endorsement of the Democratic candidate. Yeah, for instance, I don't think we talked much about the Indiana Chamber of Commerce endorsing Eric Holcomb, which they did a while back, because I think everybody was expecting the Indiana Chamber of Commerce to endorse Eric Holcomb. But, Nikki, let me ask you this about this endorsement from the, the Northwest Indiana Building Trades. Um, does it do more to help Eric Holcomb or hurt Woody Myers? Probably the latter. I, I mean, obviously, I think it's clear when you saw, when I saw this endorsement, it became clear. I mean, we all know that Governor Holcomb is the absolute front runner. And I just think this is one of those times where they said, okay, we need to pick the right horse and pick the horse who can help us because it seems that, you know, barring some sort of major change or scandal or something that, you know, Holcomb is probably going to be reelected. All right. Well, Indiana House Speaker Todd Houston removed Representative Jim Lucas from two study committees recently and demoted him in another. The move came after Lucas drew fire for the most recent incident in which he posted on social media a meme decried as racist. Houston made no statement on the matter. The changes came in a list of updated committee assignments. Anne Delaney, your husband serves on these study committees. I'm sure you're very well familiar with them. Is being removed from a couple of study committees really a punishment? No, it might be seen as a, as a boom, uh, seriously. But where's the outrage? 
I, I mean, this isn't the first time Jim Lucas has done something as disgusting as this. Where's the outrage from the speaker or the leader in the Senate or the governor about this kind of thing? I mean, it's almost analogous to when President Trump said that there are good people who are white supremacists and, and, and having, having an, an attorney general who broke women. Do they really want this to be the, the voice and, and the vision for the Republican Party in the state of Indiana? They should be calling for his resignation or at the very least for his apology, and no one has said anything. Uh, Michael Bryan and Delaney just alluded to this. My piece alluded to it. This is not the first time something like this has happened with Jim Lucas, though I think, if memory serves, this is the first time that the Speaker of the House, notably in this case a new Speaker of the House, Todd Houston, has taken an action like removing him from committees, even if they are just study committees. Does that make more of an impact or not really? Well, I think it's what the Speaker had available to him right now. We have a part-time legislature. If we're in the middle of session and this happens, then it, removing him from a standing committee or stopping legislation he has moving would be other tools that he had available to him. You don't have that many tools right now. And where's the outrage? I mean, part of this is, you're right, Jim Lucas has done this repeatedly, spanning several elections when he's been widely reelected. And, you know, I think there, I think part of the reason that he continues to get reelected, he continues to just push back when there's when there is outrage about the things that he says in this regard is that people, there, there is a real constituency for people that think that you're just unfairly crucified publicly when you when you do something like that. I don't agree with that, but it's how Donald Trump got elected in part. So, um, you know, his constituents at some point have got to be the ones to replace him. Well, I, that's true, but that doesn't mean the speaker and the leader in the Senate and the governor can't condemn that kind of conduct. All right. Well, that'll be the final word because that is Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Stay safe, stay healthy, and please join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.